Gabe prayed part of my first point. So he was looking and reading well into the text. Uh, I'll share that with you in a bit. I, uh, several years ago, had the opportunity to travel with uh, some members and staff of this YMCA to go to Vietnam. And uh, it was uh, a trip planned intentionally to give staff and board members and uh, Y members uh, more cultural awareness uh, regarding uh, the high population of Vietnamese uh, in our own city. Arlington is uh, one of the, the top 10 um, cities uh, with one of the highest population of Vietnamese in them. And so uh, as a YMCA, uh, we took a partnership trip to go to Vietnam to serve, to help build a school and paint a school and do some things like that. But in addition to that, uh, become a little bit more cultural, uh, have a little more cultural awareness of the Vietnamese uh, culture uh, to come back and to engage them well here. And um, in fact, they're going on uh, that trip for the second time since uh, we couldn't go during COVID. Now they're going uh, again this year and um, looking forward to hearing the report after that. But it was on that trip uh, that I had several moments of remembrance of this passage uh, for Vietnam it is, is not a Christian nation, it doesn't have Christian as their predominant religion, doesn't have Judaism as their predominant religion, but they've got temples, temples and temples and temples, uh, Buddhist temples, Cao Taoist temples, Hindu temples, temples galore. And it was uh, part of our trip to go and visit some of these places to see people worshiping, to see people uh, practicing their religion, and, and just to um, see the, the structures and, and different things like that. And I remember going into some of these temple compounds and outside the temple compounds being shops upon shops upon shops of gadgets and trinkets and treats and snacks and different things like that. In fact, my kids got... Uh, souvenirs from those kinds of temple shops that I can imagine if that religion were a true religion, worshiping a true God, and if that true God came down and saw what was happening around that temple, they would have been upset as well. But we, we know that those those false gods and idols that they have set up and those religions that uh, are being practiced there are not true. Uh, and yet, it, being there in that moment reminded me so much of this story and the sto story of another temple cleansing in the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus came in being truly God Himself, the Son of God, and getting upset at the lack of true worship and true worshipers. Uh, this trade going on merchants being set up, and, and the frustration that, that came with that as Gabe prayed, the righteous anger that, that came from that. Uh, I want you to imagine that scene that I experienced several years ago um, being very similar to what Jesus experienced here in John chapter 2, verse 13. And as the story goes, this first paragraph, we note that Jesus is really seeking true worship, and true worshipers. You might remember that it was Jesus who, as a teenager, uh, made another trip to the temple and enjoyed being in his father's house previously, and even was left behind there as his parents went on to their hometown. And when they realized that he wasn't there, they went back and they found him there. Jesus um, himself uh, loving spending time in the temple with true worshipers, those who were seeking uh, a knowledge of the Lord. Well, Jesus finds himself in a temple again. Uh, for verse 13, John records in this story, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
This is one of three Passovers that John mentions in his gospel, kind of showing the three-year ministry of Jesus for a Passover came once a year. It was a celebration of the Jews uh, to celebrate and and give thanks and, and praise and worship the Lord who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and towards, I'll say at least, the promised land through the Red Sea. And so they would remember the Lord's deliverance uh, rather than killing the firstborn son in their family as the Lord did to every family in Egypt, the Lord passed over those Jewish homes. If they had responded in faith, in obedience, in sacrificing a lamb in place of their son and placing that blood on their doorposts, the angel of death God said would pass over them. And so every year the, Jer- the Jews were to celebrate this remembrance, uh, this Passover. And here they were doing it. And, and so the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You'll always note that when someone goes to Jerusalem, they go up to. If you can look back in verse 12, and see, there we go. And see, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, some 16 mile trek from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Not an easy trek on foot, probably a couple days' journey uphill. Uh, not in the snow both ways, as your grandfather probably told you, and you probably experienced this week uh, here in Texas, but, but uphill nevertheless, all the way to Jerusalem. And in the temple where he went, uh, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Again, imagine that scene that I described to you that I experienced in Vietnam at those temples there. As Jesus comes there, He's looking and seeking true worship and true worshipers, and instead He finds animals. Not only animals, but He finds money changers there. These were there because as Jesus had to travel 16 miles, many others were having to travel many more miles than that. And, and when they would come to Passover, they were required to bring a sacrifice, an offering. And I want you to imagine, as hard as it is to travel with your little kids, imagine having uh, a little lamb in the back as, as well. Even more so traveling uh, by foot or uh, with, with a donkey or something like that. And so, rather than having to travel that 16-mile journey or longer than that, how much easier would it be to just get to Jerusalem and then purchase one from one of these merchants who was there? Um, Or if when you get there, as they were, required to pay their temple tax, and you didn't happen to have money in that currency, then how much easier would it be for you to just show up to the temple, one-stop shop, change your currency, buy your offering, and walk right into the temple? Sounds like a great plan, right? So much easier. So much easier than having to bring Fluffy along the entire trip to have to take your currency and switch it out there and be prepared to pay Uh, and and make that entire journey and then be able to worship. But easier is not always better. We can think of a host of different um, uh, aspects in our own lives that that make that true. Uh, Easier is not always better. And in fact, in this situation, it made it harder for others The ease that the Jews experienced in being able to one-stop shop right in the temple made it hard, if not impossible, 
for any other um, nation to draw near to the Lord in prayer and in worship. For the Jews were not selling animals and changing money in the actual temple building itself, but in the the temple compound, the court of the Gentiles is what it was called, the outer court, where the Gentiles were invited by God and should have been invited by God's people to come into the temple compound and to find a place to worship the one true and living God. Remember, these Jews were to be, uh, and the Lord Himself was a light to the nations. We saw that in our last passage when Jesus did this first miracle at Cana in Galilee, where Cana in Galilee was representative of the nations, and Jesus was to be a light to the nations. Well, so was the pe- so were the people of God, to be a light to the nations. But the Jews wanted it to be easier on them. So they took the area of the temple compound, the court of the Gentiles, and brought in animals to sell for the Passover celebration and money changers in there, which meant that the Gentiles, the nations, had no place to draw near to God to worship. So what was easier for the Jews made it hard, if not impossible, for the nations to draw near to God and worship. I wonder if we would think about as, as Christians, as, as a church, are there things that we do that make it easier on us in this life that keep others from drawing near to God and worshiping the Lord? We, we need to con- consider this. For them, as any good real estate would know, location was everything. And, and being there in the outer court was the closest place that they could get for people that were coming to worship to find an animal and to change their money. Uh, But this convenience for the Jews made it harder for the nations to worship. And so when Jesus came, instead of finding true worship, true worshipers, instead of finding true giving and prayer and amens, all He found were oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Uh, And so Jesus made a a cord uh, or made a whip out of a cord uh, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. I think what John might mean there is he's driving them all, all the people out of the temple courts as well, along with the sheep and the oxen there. In, including in, encouraging these Jews or urging these Jews to get out of this place that was supposed to be, as Jesus says in another place, a, a place and a house of prayer. They had made it a den of robbers uh, in this place. Uh, this temple cleansing, as Jesus drives them out, is, I think, the first of two temple cleansings that the Bible tells us about. The other temple cleansing is found in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that temple cleansing comes at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, just before His crucifixion, when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem the last time. But this one happens at the beginning of His ministry. And, And happening here at the beginning of His ministry Um, Jesus uh, says what I mentioned earlier in the synoptics at the second time that this court of the Gentiles was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, quoting from Isaiah 56 verse 7. Here John quotes Jesus in his righteous anger towards these religious Jews that are keeping the Gentiles from drawing near to Him. He quotes Him as saying in verse 16, though He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make My Father's house a house of trade. Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. 
Now, that phrase, my father's house, will and claiming God for the temple was the dwelling place of God. It was God's house. And for Jesus to say, don't make my father's house a house of trade, he was claiming that God was his father and that he was God's son. Now, that would not incite the Jews in the way that it will incite them later in John chapter 5 when he claims that God is his father. But here it incites them uh, for a different reason, for how dare you come and drive us all out of, of this place? How dare you, uh, you know, uh, get rid of everything that we've been doing for years and years and years? But Jesus is claiming here that, that He is the Son of God, but not only the Son of God, but we see that the disciples see in His statement that He's also the Son of David. Look in verse 17. After John narrates this event of what's happening, he gives us a, a helpful comment, uh, some commentary uh, of how we are to understand it. Uh, for he gives us a little hint at how his disciples understood what happened in that moment. And so in verse 17, John's commentary says, his disciples remembered that it was written, and there he quotes from Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Later, we're going to get another comment, some commentary from John in verse 22 when he uh, says that his disciples remembered that he had said this after Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, I think his disciples remembered this comment in the actual moment of uh, when Jesus said that. Uh, otherwise, it seems like John would add a, another timing of when they remembered that phrase later on. But right there in that moment, the disciples uh, remembered Psalm 69, verse 9. So what, what is Psalm 69, verse... Uh, well, what is Psalm 69 as a whole? Psalm 69 is a lament, uh, a prayer of sadness and mourning of King David... Uh, as a result of all of the sufferings and hardships that he had faced uh, as king. And, and if you know the story of David, you know he had to run for much of his early kingship uh, and, and faced uh, great anguish, gr great suffering. Some of it even came um, for his own zeal for the Lord, his own desire to worship the Lord, his own desire to even build a temple for the Lord. And so David was being persecuted and even suffering for his zeal for the Lord. And John is telling us that the disciples, when they um, saw Jesus do this and, and heard Jesus speak, that their mind immediately went to David's lament and that they're saying that Jesus is the promised son of David, the promised king that would come from the line of David. In Psalm 69, it's said of David that zeal had consumed him. Uh, that David's zeal for the, for the house had consumed him. But when John writes it here regarding the disciples' interpretation of that, notice how he writes it here. Zeal for your house will consume me. They see Jesus as the son of David, the king that was promised to Israel that would come that zeal for his father and for his father's house would consume him and will consume him. And it was not just for a building that 
Jesus had zeal for. It was so much more for that, as we'll see in, in the rest of the passage. But Jesus came seeking true worship and true worshipers in this place, and he didn't find it. He, he found merchants. He found trade going on there, and it frustrated him. And his zeal for the Lord and for the Lord's house on that day uh, would bring about uh, his crucifixion in the end. It's interesting that when we read about, as we have in the previous weeks, some of the prophecies in the Old Testament of John the Baptist uh, from Malachi chapter 3, that there would be one who would come and prepare the way for the Lord, speaking about, uh, according to Jesus' interpretation, that John the Baptist would come and prepare the way for Jesus Christ. It also mentions that this one would come to purify um, God's people and to purify the worship. So consider Malachi 3, verse 1 with me. This pr promise of a one who would prepare the way, it was John the Baptist, but then the, the coming ministry of the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi prophesies, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, says the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, his temple, note, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, that is the Lord, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner or a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Those, that is, those who uh, are not priests themselves, but those who serve in the temple. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. It seems as if this prophecy is not only predicting the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but it also seems as if this prophecy is predicting that the Lord Himself, Jesus, would come to His temple to purify it and that Jesus begins his ministry doing that very thing, coming to the temple and purifying it, driving out all the false worship, driving out all the everything that wasn't true worship, driving out all of those who weren't there to truly worship the Lord. Because Jesus is coming to seek true worship and true worshipers. He's coming to find those who are truly drawing near to Him. He's coming not to find just religious activity happening over and over and over. He's not simply looking for uh, church attendance. He's not simply looking for church giving. He's not simply looking uh, for a knowledge about Him. He's looking for those who are there to truly seek after Him, to truly worship Him. He's looking for true worshipers. Zeal for God's house would consume Jesus, but it's not just zeal for a building that Jesus had. It was zeal for a better temple that was to come. And that's what Jesus gets at in this second paragraph in verse 18. You might note here that Jesus reveals Himself as the true temple. Having come to the temple seeking true worship and true worshipers, now Jesus reveals Himself as the true temple. It says in verse 18, So the Jews said to Him, 
What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember, signs in the Gospel of John are are key. Uh, To the Apostle John writing this Gospel, he's chose specific signs to put into his Gospel so that we would see that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that we would believe in Him, and that believing in Him, we would have life in His name. And so John uh, writes, John records several specific signs in his gospel to show that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even in stories like this, as these um, these Jews are seeking signs, something to prove that he has the authority to cleanse the temple. The reality is, is that they, they missed the sign. I just read from Malachi, written 400 years before the period in which this happened, a prediction that the Lord would come to his temple and purify it and refine it. They had experienced it, but they were too um, uh, they were too focused on the religion, the religious activity that was going on, rather than looking at their own hearts in that moment. Uh, they were unwilling to see that they were the dross in the silver that Jesus was driving out and and purifying. And so they had missed the biggest sign. But Jesus answered them in verse 19. And he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. On, on its surface, uh, Jesus making a claim like this is, is just drastic. Um, commanding them to destroy the temple and that he would rebuild it in three days. It's kind of of a line drawn in the sand and saying, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll I'll raise it back up again. It it was so far-fetched for them that they just couldn't understand what was happening. It's similar to what's going to happen in the next passage when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, what, you want me to enter into my mother's womb? There is constant misunderstanding uh, recorded by the Apostle John in the Gospel by those who are not truly seeking and worshiping the Lord. Uh, constant misunderstanding brought up. And that, that's what they had in that, in that moment. And the Jews, uh, in verse 20, their response then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Forty-six years, Josephus, uh, the first century historian, actually affirms this, saying that the temple actually began uh, being constructed by Herod the Great in 19 B.C., and it had been 46 years up to that point when Jesus began His ministry in A.D. 27. Um, it really didn't finish its completion until 63 A.D., but the temple, as it was, had been uh, built uh, quickly in those first few years of construction and then had continually been, was being constructed over those 46 years. And so they just can't realize how Jesus would say, if you tear down this temple, the building the compound and the surrounding area that he would rebuild that in three days. But of course, as as we know, for we had this scripture read to us this morning, we've read through this gospel twice now as a church up to this point, we know that Jesus wasn't speaking of the temple building itself, but the temple. He was speaking of himself as the temple. We're helped 
in uh, verse 21 where John adds his commentary, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus here is identifying himself as the true temple. Jesus is saying that the temple of the Old Testament was just a, a shadow of what was to come, just a, a, a picture pointing to the, the true um, temple itself, Jesus Christ. In fact, John's commentary goes on in verse 22 and says that when therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, after spending three years with the disciples, uh, was ultimately, after He cleansed the temple the second time, was arrested, was convicted, was crucified. He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. And then on the third day, was raised to life. And it's interesting that John, one of those disciples, writing this gospel, is writing in this commentary, not that they understood it even then, like, he might, like they might have understood the previous comment that Jesus made, but not even did the disciples understand the comment that Jesus made about the temple until three years later after Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And, and think about the disciples as John was one of those who ran to the tomb and witnessed the empty tomb and saw the resurrected Christ Himself, how in that moment, all of those things that Jesus said that they didn't fully understand in that moment just came rushing back to their hearts and minds and realizing on that Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to His disciples, how they remembered this cleansing uh, temple experience uh, and, and Jesus predicting that if they would destroy this temple that he would raise it back up on the third day I just can't imagine what that would have been like for that um, not only to experience this story but to experience the the revelation of the truth of this story years later and for that to come flooding back to their hearts and mind and how that would encourage them to be true worshipers them, themselves and to give themselves for Jesus' sake. But it's here where Jesus identifies Himself as the true temple. And if I can go back earlier in the Gospel of John, um, Jesus has already identified Himself as the tabernacle. When in John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, uh, or, or verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word there is that He tabernacled among us. John is hinting early on in the Gospel that Jesus was the true and better tabernacle. And here Jesus is identifying Himself as the true and better temple. So what, what does that mean? Uh, throughout the story of the Bible, we see um, this, these pictures of God dwelling with people. And so if you imagine all the way to the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden was a temple of, of sorts. Uh, he walked with them uh, until they sinned, and God cast Adam and Eve out of the, the temple, out of the Garden of Eden uh, for a time until um, God, choosing Abraham and raising up a people for Himself uh, and leading His people uh, through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of light, gave instructions to build a tabernacle, a 
portable tent that would be a portable dwelling place for God until he came up and moved and stopped. And they would set up the tent again. And so there was this temporary uh, house of the Lord, if you will, in the tabernacle where God would reside and God's people could come and worship Him and be in His presence there. Uh, But then as the people of God got to go into the promised land and as they established uh, a kingdom and had Saul and David as their king, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. Um, God wouldn't allow David to do that, but he'd allow Solomon to do that. And Solomon built this temple of the Lord uh, where God permanently resided with his people. And the people could come and draw near to his presence and worship there. But uh, through the threat of false worship and idolatry and sinfulness, um, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were divided. And even worse than that, the nation was conquered and taken into exile. It says that the glory of God departed from the temple in Ezekiel and that the temple itself was destroyed in 586 B.C. only to be rebuilt some years later by Ezra after the exile when Ezra brought back all of the Israelites back over to Jerusalem and they rebuilt this temple seeking to establish true worship where true worshipers could come and and honor uh, the Lord there. But then here Jesus comes onto the scene and says, that tabernacle and that temple of the Old Testament was just a shadow pointing to me when I would come and, and I would be God myself. I am the dwelling place uh, of God. And not only that, but the New Testament would go on even more so to say that all of those who repent and believe would then be the temple of the Holy Spirit, of God Himself. And so those of us who have repented and believed, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're now the the temple uh, of God. And that we're being built up into the house of God. Ultimately to the point where you get to Revelation, where we're in God's presence, And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 that there's no need for a temple anymore. There's no need for a building that you would go to for all of the true worshipers, all of those who have repented and believed and become a a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit are now with the Lord forever in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need for a building for God to reside in, for the Lord is their God and He is among them and there's no need for a temple. This is the the theme um, that we see throughout the Scriptures regarding the temple that that Jesus is now unveiling in in the midst of it, which forces us to make sure we are intentional when we read our Bibles to read it through a, a Jesus-centered lens that we would read the Bible Christologically, one author says. He, he writes, for the New Testament, the interpretation of the Old Testament is not literal, but Christological. The coming of Christ transforms all the kingdom terms, like temple of the Old Testament, into gospel reality. Jesus didn't come to establish a new physical building and temple. He came to establish a new kingdom and a new people whom God would reside in as those new temples. And so we don't read this passage and simply look at some of the things that we do on this Sunday morning at our church and wonder if Jesus came in Would he overturn our coffee table? 
If Jesus came in, would he overturn our resource table? Or if we were selling merch out there with hoodies and tea, is Jesus going to come? That's not how we apply this passage simply, though there may be application to that. For not this building, nor any other church building, is the temple of God. It's simply a building where the people of God, the temples of God, gather together to worship the Lord. Where we really need to apply this passage is to our own hearts individually as the temple of God and wonder and look, not at the hallways of this YMCA as we come in on a Sunday morning, but look at the hallways of our hearts and to say, Lord, is there anything keeping me from truly worshiping you in my heart and in my life? Is there sin in my life that needs to be purified and burned out that I might be able to worship you more truly? Or Christian, is there anything in your life that like the Jews there in the court of the Gentiles were establishing trade and merchant uh, life going on there, were keeping Gentiles from coming and worshiping the Lord? Is there anything in your life, in your uh, life that is keeping the nations, the Gentiles, from wanting to worship the one true and living God, Jesus Christ, His very own Son, because your life doesn't seem to match up with the lifestyle that, that Christ calls us to? There's so many applications for us here because when Christ died on the cross, the Bible records in the Gospels that the innermost curtain and veil in the temple that separated the dwelling place of God in the Holy of Holies and the holy place, as well as the court of Gentiles, was torn in two. Jesus, in His death, gave access to the Lord through repentance and faith in Him. It was available to all. And so the writer of Hebrews would say to those who have repented and believed in Christ that we, in Hebrews 10.19, brothers, since we have confidence to enter not only the court of the Gentiles, which is where we would have been allowed to go, but the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Christian, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Paul would go on to describe in Ephesians in chapter 2 that we are members of God's household, that we are growing up into a holy temple in the Lord. And Paul would challenge the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, reminding us that we are God's temple. And as he reminds them that they're God's temple, he, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Thinking about the building of the temple. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then he says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is why the New Testament would urge us to be holy as He is holy. For we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a passage that had great meaning to them then that Jesus was establishing the true and better temple. But when we read the rest of our New Testament, we find that when Jesus ascends to heaven, uh, He sends His promised Holy Spirit to all who repent and believe. And we become those little temples built up in the Lord. And we ought to consider is what was happening in that temple there at all happening in our lives? We need to ask ourselves that individually uh, as individual Christians, but we also need to ask that corporately as a church. There are aspects of the life of our church that are distractions that are keeping us from truly worshiping the Lord. We never want to look outward and only and say, well, look at them and, and question what Jesus is meaning. We want to look introspectively. We want to look at, our own, at the life of our own church and consider, are there things that ought not be individually as members of this church, but corporately uh, as a church as well? For Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the charge that we have uh, from the Lord Himself. But let me just close in reading this last response. Jesus says, or John writes in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Lastly, we note that Jesus entrusts himself to those who truly trust in him. There were many people on that day that believed in Jesus simply because of the other signs that he did in Jerusalem that week. But their believing in signs quickly faded away. Their belief was in a sign, not in the one who did the sign. And so Jesus urges us to not truly come to Him for what uh, He might do for us, for what signs and miracles He could do for us, but for what sign He has already done for us. For He died and rose from the dead, forgiving us of our sin so that we could experience life in His name. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus will entrust himself to those who truly trust in him. Not those who just truly trust for signs, but those who truly trust in Christ, repenting of their sins and following after him. In John 14, 23, he says this is available for anyone. Anyone who would come to him, the Lord would make his home with him. And so let me encourage you, if you've yet to come to Christ, if you've yet to come to Jesus, if you've yet to repent of your sins and turn from your own ways and trust Christ, why would you not come today? For He offers and promises to make His home with you, to send His very Spirit to dwell in you, for you to become a temple of the Lord yourself, being built up with the rest of us into a holy temple to the Lord, to one day dwell with the Lord forever in heaven where there's no need of a temple anymore. We get to be with Him forever. Why not make this day the day that you look to Christ, repenting of your sins and trusting Him, coming to Him and trusting, trusting Him so that He might entrust Himself to you. And Christian, let me urge us to make sure that we are being holy as He is holy, for we are the temple of the Lord, individually, but also corporately, lest our witness, uh, lest our worship not be true, and lest our witness be damaged to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us individually as Christians and as a church, that we would not allow ourselves to simply fall into the routine uh, of Christian religiosity, but that we would each and every day, each and every Sunday, desire to draw near to You, desire to live for You and for Your name's sake. For You have drawn near to us and dwell in us. Lord, would you help us to be holy as you are holy, that we might truly worship you day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday. But God, I also pray for those who have yet to come to you in repentance and faith and have come to you with a lot of religious activity like was described here in this temple and have found that to be lacking God, I pray that they would come to you this morning in repentance and faith and trust in you alone and rest on your promise that you would come to dwell with them, make your home with them. Lord, would you do that work of salvation in their life? Would you do the work of sanctification in our lives as a church? Lord, because we want to honor and glorify you. We want to truly worship you. But we also, Lord, want our witness in this world to be worth it. We want it to reflect you well. And so, God, would you help us? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.